electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The Fed's James Bullard reiterating his call to go well north of 5% to beat inflation. How many Fed officials agree? That's one clue investors will be watching for in the Fed minutes due out in an hour. We'll get you set up for that as stocks try to recover from their worst day of the year. And one of our guests says high inflation is leading some companies to suffer from, quote, money illusion. And it's one reason layoffs haven't hit just yet. We look at what it means for the market and shares of Wingstop soaring almost 10 percent on earnings. We'll talk to the CEO about the disinflation they're seeing. We'll also hear from a vacation company CEO still seeing high demand. But first, let's get to Dom Chu with today's market number. How about session highs right now or just thereabouts, Kelly? So it is green across the board. Uh, marginally, fractionally speaking, it's about a quarter to one third percent gains across all three major indices here in the U.S. The Dow Industrial is up 67 points, 33,197, about a quarter of one percent. Similar percentage move for the S&P 500, which is now above that 4,000 mark again, up about nine points. And how is this for symmetry? At the highs of the session, kind of near where we are right now, we were up 14 points. At the lows of the session, we were down 14 points. So again, kind of drifting towards the higher end of things right now. The Nasdaq Composite, the outperformer, if you want to call it that, up about four tenths of 1% at 11,536. That's up 44 points. One place to watch in particular is what's happening right now from a macro perspective on the crude oil front. It's down about 2.5% right now, seven straight days worth of losses for U.S. benchmark crude prices amidst that fear that higher interest rates could dampen the economy. What could happen? Fuel demand goes down possibly. So that's been driving some of that near-term downside here. And you can see here we've lost about 20% of crude oil's value over the last year. So watch those and the stocks that go along with them. And then if you're looking for a real bright spot today, check out what's happening with the home builders on the heels of Toll Brothers, which is up 3.5% right now, out with earnings, where profits and revenues both come in better than expected. They're also seeing some stronger signs of demand in the first part of 2023 as well. That's having a carryover effect into names like Lennar, also up about 1%. Mohawk Industries, they do flooring, right? A lot of those flooring and, and, and type companies are up about you know 1%. Their Home Depot on the home improvement front, fresh off some of the beating it took on the earnings, up about 1.5%. And the iShares U.S. Home Construction ETF, about 1.5% as well. So check out housing. We're seeing some signs of life. We'll see if it sticks. Thanks, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you. We're less than an hour away from the release of the Fed Minutes. Steve Leisman is at the Federal Reserve with what to expect. Steve? Yes, Kelly, thanks. The minutes of the January-February meeting are going to be scrutinized really closely for what they say about how aggressive the Fed is going to be in the months ahead. But the tricky part here is how much has happened since the meeting that might not be reflected in these meetings. Let me give you a list. We had a blockbuster jobs report, you remember, a huge retail sales report. We had two sticky inflation reports. We had Bullard from St. Louis and Mester from Cleveland saying they wanted 50 base points at the last meeting and would consider one for March, something that Bullard reiterated again today in an exclusive CNBC interview. All of that has created a dramatic move in the outlook for the Fed this year with pricing for the year-end funds market in the futures market surging from an implied yield of 439 after that Fed beat 
meeting on February 1 to around 5.15. Today, you can wait a long time to see a move like that in your lifetime. That brings the market in line with the Fed's own average forecast for now. It's hoped that the minutes can shed some light on how many officials joined Mester and Bullard in wanting a 50 at the last meeting and how many might support one in March. Or do most prefer this idea reiterated by the chairman to move in 25 basis point increments? Futures pricing suggests markets look for 25s in the months ahead. The odds of such a move at each of the next two meetings above 80 percent at 60% for June. That's a new development in the last several weeks. The main takeaway, the market has come a long way since the last meeting in pricing more rate hikes in and is priced for the minutes today to affirm that hawkish turn, all of which is just a half step to the March meeting. We'll likely get a new rate hike and new, proje new projections, along with, in the interim, Kelly, more inflation and jobs and economic activity reports. Right, which is, you know, arguably more important. Steve, question, you know, the minutes we usually turn to for new information that might reveal a split among uh, the members kind of hinting about the future, which uh, part of the struggle will win out. Do we have any differences of opinion right now? I mean, it, it, you've pointed this out that people are so consistent, actually. I, I wonder if it takes out some of the drama. Well, they, they had been. And, and, and this Mester and Bullard uh, revelations in the intermediate period, even before the minutes, where they kind of front run the release of the minutes, was the one big development that mm. happened in terms of uh, some kind of what do you want to call it um, uh, a crack in the monolithic fed fed speak when it comes to raising rates and what we're going to be looking for today is how many people join them are they just two that wanted 50 and may want 50 remember Kelly the regime shift it was a slight regime shift was from these big 75s to a 50 to Powell telling us we think we're going to move in 25s uh, in the future Bullard is not satisfied with that. He wants the Fed to get to the terminal rate. This is what he told us today right. at five and three eighths and go in quarters after that. That's the way he wanted to move. Right. Oh, all right. That does give us quite a lot to go with then. Uh, Steve, we'll see you in an hour. Thank you, sir. Steve Leisman. Yeah. Is the Fed winning this round? Seems like they are in the battle of the Fed versus the markets. Neil Kashkari warning recently that Wall Street is by nature too optimistic and that they would ultimately have to come around to the Fed's higher rate hike path. Yesterday, we saw that finally happen as the market's at that 5.1% or so level that Fed officials project they'll be taking rates to by year end. And we did hear St. Louis Fed President James Bullard this morning reiterating his call for rates to hit 5.4%. So will higher rates mean lower stock prices? Joining us now, Peter Bookbar is here. He's chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial and a CNBC contributor. Welcome, Peter. And Doug Ramsey is here as well. He's chief investment officer at the Luthold Group. It's, it's great to have you both on board. And Peter, you highlighted Kashkari's uh, remarks. You've heard from Bullard this morning. He wants 50s till we get, I guess, all the way up there. Uh, what are you going to be watching for? Well, they are relying on the strong labor market and still elevated inflation in giving them license and comfort that they can keep doing this. If all of a sudden the next payroll number is, has a minus sign, right. just sort of mean reversion from the blowout when we had a few weeks ago, then all of a sudden, okay, maybe they, we got one left or maybe two tops or initial jobs claims if they start ticking up above 200, which shockingly they've been very low. Yeah. But until that happens, the Fed feels like they have free reign to continue tightening, just as when inflation was low, they felt they had free reign to go to zero and print all the money in the world. Do, I mean, I wrote about this a little today. Do you think that infrastructure spending, government projects is partly responsible for why things have suddenly held up so well? Or do you think it's just a weather effect or is it, is it you know, hey, the business cycle is still pretty strong? Well, it definitely in, in construction, it, it sort of creates that bid for more workers. 
but also creates a further cycling higher of wages. Right. You know, there, there's this assumption that, yeah, we can build all this infrastructure, but where are you going to find the people to do it? Well, in order to do that, you've got to pay up which means home builders need to pay up to retain people. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, at least in that area of the labor market. So it can keep things overall a little hotter than, than they would have been otherwise. Sure. I mean, this is a lot of government spending that is being thrown on an already inflationary environment, of yeah, course. Yeah, a couple of different hotel CEOs have highlighted that lately. That's why I bring it up. Doug, you have kind of an interesting point here about the way inflation might be leading to labor hoarding, that it's this money illusion, you know, company and, you know, this may not be the right example, but Wingstop, uh, Wingstop comps, for instance, 9% versus 6% expected. I mean, all of this is nominal. Um, in right. real terms, do you think companies are going to face more of a reckoning in terms of how strong demand really is? I do, but as you noted, it's going to be more difficult to pick up than in lower inflation times. I mean, in the fourth quarter, for example, with the GDP report, real GDP was up 1% year over year. Nominal GDP was up 7.3. Right. I mean, it's it's been decades since we've seen that sort of gap. And, of course, what are companies seeing? They're seeing that nominal growth flow over their doorsteps. So, uh, I mean, to them, the economy is still pretty solid, but the unit growth is clearly clearly slowing down. I want to bring in Rick in, in just a moment. We just had a five-year auction, Doug. But just to finish the thought, you say we have seen this before in the 70s and in the 80s. Yes. How does it play out? I mean, it at what point, uh, how, does, how does this battle play out when kind of nominal gives way to real? Well, I think the slip into recession could be a really quick one when it comes about. I mean, what we're assuming right now is we might have sort of a sweet spot over the next number of months. Uh, it's difficult to time just because of the, uh, I, I think we're still suffering reverberations from, you know, the depth of the decline and then the strength of the rebound. That's still all reverberating through the economic numbers. I mean, and it's been well noted that while well, M2 contracted for the first time on record, or at least since the 1930s, first time in the modern record last year, but it grew 40 percent cumulatively in the two years preceding 2022. So are we still seeing some carryover from the enormous stimulus right. post-COVID? Is that still carrying over? I think so. And that, that could continue for a while longer and embolden these companies to hang on to the workers that they were we're lucky enough to get. All right, let's turn to the uh, bond auction. We just had it was five years. As you see, that yield uh, well over 4%. Rick Santelli with the results. How was demand, Rick? You know, demand was a little better than average. The grade I gave for demand straight up one Easter for this five-year note auction was a C plus, a Charlie plus. So let's go through it. 43 billion five-year notes. The yield, 4.189. The one issue market ended up around 4.1056. So lower yield, uh, higher price, uh, higher yield, lower price. So it wasn't bad in terms of pricing, uh, and the metrics were all a little bit above average. But at the end of the day, uh, what I really wanted to concentrate on was indirect bidders. We all like indirect bidding category because it represents foreign interest. That was at the second highest level since 2016. And if we look at dealers, dealers takedown was 11%. That's the best, second best since record keeping. And my record keeping goes back 20 years. So C plus for the five-year note auction. And what I want to caution many on is as markets have snugged up and taken the spread out, as Steve talks about where the market and the Fed are, 
I want to draw your attention to two-year note yields settled right at their current high yield close, 4.725% yesterday, but didn't close above it. For the five-year, that's 4.44% from the 20th of October. You can see we haven't traded above it. The rest of the curve hasn't either, and you need to pay very close attention to those high watermarks from last fall. Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Doug, let's turn back to you. So when we translate all of this, and believe me, everyone out there is watching this and trying to figure out if they need to have the answer to if and when we're going into recession in order to kind of be invested right now. I mean, you would stick with energy and healthcare, and even on the energy side, things are looking kind of weak these days, at least in terms of the commodities. Um, but you also like areas like, um, you know, we talked about it, construction, semiconductors, mm-hmm. home builders. Can you just explain that? Uh, you know, very often there are many cycles underneath going on uh, that are a little bit out of sync, especially in this bizarre environment we've had post-COVID. I mean, uh, I heard discussion on Deer uh, earlier. Uh, I can't talk about individual names, but one of our most recent purchases is the construction and farm machinery group. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think commodities could stay surprisingly firm in a recessionary environment. And again, I don't have a lot of confidence on when we're going to sink into recession. Um, I mean, by the lights of the leading economic indicators, we probably should have fallen into recession sometime in the fourth quarter. Uh, of course, we'd like to look at the yield curve. Our measure would be the 10-year bond yield minus three-month bill rate. That inverted by our convention uh, three months ago. The average lead time is 10 months. It's been as long as 16. So the economy could hold up uh, here just, I mean, based on the strength of the lagged stimulus for quite a while longer. Uh, We're also in the home builders. I mean, they've had an enormous run over the last six or seven months, despite a collapsing housing market. So uh, the economy or even the uh, microeconomic cycles in these things don't always align with the, the stock price. Actually. No, I'm kind of relieved to hear you say that because in a way it doesn't all add up. And the answer is it doesn't have to. <laughs> Peter, I'll give exactly. you exactly. a final thought here, having heard what Doug said, uh, what Rick said about the auction and, and all the rest of it in terms of, OK, so tactically, what do people do right now? Well, from a fixed income perspective, you would think with these kind of yields where they are, particularly the two year, which is just shy of a 16 year high, you'd think that there'd be a lot of demand. For right. This stuff. A plus plus plus. Right. Because this, these are yields that we haven't seen in many years. But I just I think it just tells you that there's still this reticent to really pile in because there are other risks involved in fixed income. And it's not just inflation. It's what the BOJ does uh, with uh, with their yield curve control, how the ECB does QT and all these other factors that I think are uh, will keep rates elevated for a while. But do you think five point one percent on a six month bill for the retail investor, not the you know, I mean, come on. Is that just throwing money at you? Why, why wouldn't, why shouldn't somebody take that offer? They should. I mean, there was been starvation in fixed income for essentially 15 years, and they, there's finally something to eat. <laughs> right. So then final word following on to that, what about the rest of the curve? Should it be equally attractive? I think the 10-year yield, because of these external factors, like I said, the BOJ or the ECB, and how the, 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 the U.S. Treasury market deals with QT at the same time of a lot of, there's a lot of supply. Mm-hmm. Foreigners are selling U.S. Treasuries. The tenure, to me, is much more difficult to call here. I can easily make an argument that it should go to four and a half to five, but I can also say it should go to three yeah. if we go into recession and inflation really rolls over. The shorter end, to me, is, is more obvious 
in its attractiveness. All right, we will leave it there. I see Doug nodding. Uh, thank you both. It's been great to have you here today. Peter Bookvar and Doug Ramsey. Coming up, Wingstop flying to a new all-time high after a big earnings beat. But less than a year ago, the CEO told investors they were in the midst of a perfect storm. What's behind this reversal? We'll ask him next, with the stock nearly tripling off its recent low. Plus, a trio of tech titans are on deck with results, especially NVIDIA. We'll get the action, the story, and the trade on that one. Alibaba and NetEase in earnings exchange. And as we head to break, let's look at the markets, broadly speaking, where we see yields for the 10-year down below 3.9% right now. That's supporting about a half percent rise in the NASDAQ, quarter percent gain in the Dow. The S&Ps at 40.10. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselcumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clear skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clear skin at 16 weeks were still clearer at 5 years. At one year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Trimphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Welcome back. Shares of Wingstop hitting an all-time high. They were up more than 10% earlier after crushing earnings, up 7.5% now. Chicken wing deflation, a big tailwind. Digital sales, international growth also helping. And while the restaurant industry has been struggling to find enough workers, Wingstop says they're uniquely isolated from that or insulated from that challenge. Joining me now in an exchange exclusive is Michael Skipworth, the CEO of Wingstop. Michael, welcome back. Hey, Kelly. So Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. What is going on with chicken wing prices? I mean, is, is the worst behind us? We saw a significant deflation in wing prices, our core commodity. And you have seen the overall price of the bird come down significantly. And it does seem like a lot of that inflation is behind us. And what's been really nice for Wingstop is, in addition to experiencing meaningful deflation, earlier than most other brands have seen. It put us in a spot where we didn't have to take price in 2022. And in fact, we're able to lean into value and really see strong growth in our brand that resulted in us delivering our 19th consecutive year of same-store sales growth. Yeah, to make sure people caught that, you didn't have to raise prices last year. And it sounds like in some ways you were actually able to cut them back a little bit. You didn't have a problem with higher labor costs? We got in front of labor and we were able to navigate that, but we have a unique position at Wingstop and that we have a proven value playbook that allows us to lean in and provide that indulgent occasion to consumers. But in addition to that, we were able to also pull several unique growth levers that we have that brought a lot of new guests in to Wingstop. And while you've seen a lot of other restaurant companies see transaction loss in 2022 because of the pricing they took, we actually saw our comp in Q4 alone of 8.7% 
being driven entirely by transaction growth. Wow. Okay. So that answers, you know, a little bit of the conversation we were just having. Is it all nominal? Uh, but like you said, there's more transactions. So ZipRecruiter, your colleague, the CEO, will be on next hour. Their stock is down today. They've said in the first few weeks of 2023, employers have moderated their hiring plans and reduced recruitment budgets. Um, are you seeing signs of that happening? In other words, maybe just at the margin, labor demand softening, the consumer acting maybe a little bit more cautious or unpredictable? We see a lot of the same headlines out there around the overall labor environment. But for Wingstop, we're unique. We're growing. In Q4 alone, we opened 61 net new restaurants. And I think just by delivering that number that culminated in a record development year for our brand showcases that we're not having trouble staffing. And in fact, we're growing. And we guided earlier this morning to what will set up to be another record year of development. We're expecting 200, roughly 240 net new restaurants in 2023. So what's the price of, say, chicken wings now versus, you know, are we are we at lower than pre-pandemic levels? We are. We're actually seeing the price of chicken wings near a dollar, which is wow. which is much lower than the historical average price, which is really translating to strong unit economics for our brand partners and a lot of what's fueling that unit growth that I just referenced. Hey, so re refresh me. We I thought we were at about $1.50, maybe pre-pandemic went up to about $3. So now we're down to a dollar. I mean, I, I, it's a microcosm in some ways. I wonder about whether these shortages have turned into gluts. How do we end up with a glut of chicken wings at the same time we've had avian flu herd? I know there are different kinds of chicken chickens, the egg chickens versus yours, but how do we end up with a glut? Yeah, I think you had a lot of production as the labor force did come back for a lot of these poultry producers. They increased production as spending. You saw the consumer coming out of this post-pandemic environment and really wanting to dine out. And you saw them leaning into other parts of their menu, the dine-in business, more, more, if you will, of the chicken breast meat utilization, which resulted in a lot of extra wings out there, which was good for Wingstop. Yeah. So final question on that front. And we could see, I don't know if the term bullwhip is, is the correct one here, but the problem when you don't manage inventory, not you, the sort of society at large correctly, is that you keep swinging from shortages to gluts. We have a glut right now, which means producers are probably going to call, which means we could then have another shortage again. Prices go up and so forth. I mean, could you be dealing with um, kind of reverberations like that for years to come? The leading indicators that we look at suggest a pretty favorable commodity backdrop in 2023. And I think everyone out there is trying to figure out exactly what demand looks like in the back half of 23. But as we look at some of those key leading indicators, it suggests it's going to be a, a favorable commodity backdrop for Wingstop in particular. And a lot of what went into an a industry leading guide that we provided this morning for 2023. Fascinating. Well, certainly lower prices, like you said, supporting customer visits. I'm, I'm, it, it's, it's unfair to have you on an Ash Wednesday. I'm drooling, uh, Michael. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Michael Skipworth is the CEO of Wingstop. Still ahead, another check on the consumer, this time with the CEO of Travel and Leisure, fresh off an earnings beat. We'll get their latest read on the vacation rental market and overall travel demand. The shares are up 14% this year. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map, two to one advancers versus decliners, led by Home Depot after yesterday's decline. Amex, Salesforce, Walmart. Interestingly enough, the biggest laggard. We're back after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. 
<laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back, everybody. We're just off session highs. Dow's up 105. S&P's hitting 4013. Nasdaq up half a percent as rates have uh, loosened up a bit. Palo Alto Networks is leading the Nasdaq after its earnings beat. Cyber company posting its third straight profitable quarter after a decade of losses. CEO says they're now three years ahead of profitability goals they laid out in 2021. And with more than 15 million shares traded today, it's nearly four times its 30-day average volume. Again, Palo Alto up nearly 12 percent. Apple also turning positive in the past hour on a Bloomberg report that they've made a breakthrough on a glucose monitoring system that could help uh, or be incorporated into the Apple Watch. You can see this shift here from being in the red to being up about half a percent right now. But shares of Dexcom, the medical device maker, are now falling as much as 9% on the news. They are well off session lows with about a 1% decline. By the way, we've tried some of these uh, monitors out there. They're tricky, uh, but they're kind of cool. Uh, I think it's the future, Dom Chu. What do you, well, before I get there, let's mention Intel announcing a rare dividend cut this morning, slashing their quarterly payout by two-thirds uh, from about 36 to 12 cents a share. It's Intel's first cut in over two decades. The shares are only fractionally lower. They're down 60%, though, since that last reduction in 2000. So there are other places to turn if you're hunting for yield. On that note, Dom Chu has Sectornomics, Dom. <laughs> All right, so to your point, I think a lot of investors and traders were already expecting that Intel was going to have to cut its dividend at some point to help shore up its balance sheet to fund its expansion later on down the line. But with that in effect, consumer discretionary is our sector of focus this time around. And with regard to dividend yields, consumer discretionary is actually one of the least yielding sectors out there. Uh, overall, you got about a maybe 0.9% yield, nine-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500 is closer to 160 basis points or 1.6%. Now, if you take a look at where traders and investors, some of them look for some of those healthier dividends, as opposed to dividend yields that go up because the share prices collapse. They look towards dividend aristocrats, those stocks in the S&P 500 that have increased their annual dividend for 25 plus years. Now, in those, the S&P 500 consumers discretionary sector has five names that fit that aristocrat methodology. And here are those five. Again, dividend aristocrats in consumer discretionary. They are home improvement retailer Lowe's, which has a 2% yield for dividends. Genuine, genuine parts on the auto parts side, about a 2.2% yield. McDonald's, 2.3%. Target, 2.6%. And VF Corp, 4.8%. So among those names that some investors look for more stability in dividends within consumer discretionary, they look towards those dividend aristocrats. And out of these 67 or so companies, Kelly, that are considered aristocrats in the S&P 500, these five are in that consumer discretionary sector. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, I mean, people don't have to reach uh, quite so much for what could be a, a dividend in danger. Dom, thanks so much, Dom Chi. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? You got it, Kelly. Thanks very much. Uh, amid criticism, the White House is responding too slowly to the CSX train derailment in Ohio. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg visited East Palestine. We'll do it tomorrow, where residents are very worried about exposure to the toxic chemicals that were aboard that uh, derailed train. Uh, President Trump, former President Trump, there today to draw a contrast with the Biden administration. Meantime, Trump's vice president, Mike Pence, is drawing his own contrast with his former boss's pledge never to touch Social Security and Medicare. 
appearing on CNBC's Squawk Box this morning. Mr. Pence said entitlements will fuel a debt crisis over in the U.S. over the next 25 years, and nobody in Washington wants to talk about it. Well, I, I respect uh, the Speaker's commitment to take Social Security and Medicare off the table uh, for the debt ceiling negotiations. We've got to put them on the table in the long term. The thing that I... And National Public Radio will lay off roughly 10% of its staff. That's at least 100 jobs. Its CEO citing falling advertising revenues, especially for its podcasts, and calls the job cuts a major loss. Kelly, back to you. All right, uh, Tyler, thank you. Coming up, NVIDIA has only missed earnings once in the past five years. As the bulls and bears debate China's reopening, Alibaba will give us a read on that spend. And investors watching NetApp for any further guidance on that 8% workforce reduction plan. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on all three in earnings exchange. And during February, we're celebrating Black Heritage through the stories of some of our teammates, contributors, and leaders in business. Here's Worldwide Exchange anchor Frank Holland. No one does anything alone. During Black Heritage Month, we must remember the people that laid the groundwork for the opportunities that we all enjoyed today. For me, that's my parents and especially my mom, who always explained to me, everything that we have has been worked for, sacrificed for, and prayed for, and none of it was given. I know there were many times my mom or my grandparents, or even further back, took less, endured disrespect, and put their own dreams to the side, put me in the position that I'm in today. I was the first person in my family to graduate college. I never forget, it was all made possible by my family. They found a way to open doors and create opportunities when there just really wasn't a way. And it was all hard work, sacrifice, and prayer. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Earnings Exchange, and today we're talking tech. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on NVIDIA, Alibaba, and NetApp. Got to start with NVIDIA. Shares are up nearly 30% in the past three months. Intel just slashed its dividend, and now we've got explosive growth in AI, which NVIDIA's chips support. CNBC's Steve Kovac has the story here, and Kim Forrest joins us with our trades today. She's CIO of Boca Capital Partners. Steve, let's start with you and this earnings report. What are you watching? Yeah, there are a bunch of things to watch, Kelly, but the word of the day is going to be dramatic slowdown for NVIDIA's business. We saw that during their last earnings, and we're probably going to see it again with gaming expected to take as much of a 50% drop year on year. And we know the reason behind that. We saw it from Microsoft saying PC sales have just collapsed, as has gaming activity and gaming spending. So no surprise there. But speaking of gaming, Kelly, they just signed, NVIDIA just signed this great agreement with Microsoft yesterday. Microsoft pledging to, if the Activision deal goes through to put Activision games and some Xbox PC games on NVIDIA's rival cloud gaming service. So if that transaction goes through on the Microsoft side, that could provide a boost to some of the gaming business. And then over to data center, Kelly, there's uh, just a very slow growth there. It's slowing down as enterprise spend dries up. Again, we heard from that from Microsoft. But all this uh, energy and investment around artificial intelligence, ChatGPT and so forth, is putting a lot of optimization 
optimism in the stock. I think it's up 40 percent or more yeah. so far year to date. And a lot of that is because of the excitement around AI. But how long does it take for NVIDIA to really capitalize on it? It makes some of the best chips in this to sell into data centers for future startups or other companies that want to get in on this trend. So I'll be listening on the call from Jensen Wang, the CEO, when they expect to see kind of a windfall from this or, or a revenue boost in the data center business because of all this excitement around AI. So that's what I'm yeah, looking for. And Kelly. Kim, before I turn to you, Steve, when, uh, when the announcement came out uh, from Microsoft that NVIDIA would still have access to these games, I was thinking to myself, NVIDIA what? I, 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 what is, right. what, can you just fill that in a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So what that is, it's a, think of it as Netflix, but for gaming. So instead of, you know, putting, installing the game right on your console or your PC, you stream the game. Now, Xbox slash Microsoft has a slimmer service for all their Xbox games. What Microsoft is offering NVIDIA here in order to get NVIDIA to endorse the deal, by the way, yeah. They said, we'll give you some of these Activision games. We'll give you some of these Xbox games, including Call of Duty, which has been the hinging point of this entire transaction. Yeah. And NVIDIA said yes. And by the way, they're all in on the deal now. So they got, they got another one. I just didn't one. realize that they had this. Pl- and I, I still, and again, I, we're getting too far off point here, but I still think when anytime you say, look, we promise we'll give it to you for 10 years, you're basically implying that it has a, a shelf life. Exactly. That the whole thing is, you know, exactly. anyway. That's what a lot of people are missing in this, I think. All right, Steve. Kim, let me turn to you um, so that you can pop the AI balloon and, and don't don't break my heart too much because I, I think this is stunning technology just to my naked, uninformed eyes. But you have worked on stuff like this in the past and you warn it's going the way of 3D printers. I have. Well, I don't know that it's going to go the way of 3D printers because that was probably the most hyped, not really ever gotten to its promise, right, the, right. of technology. So, but getting back to AI. AI has some great uses, no doubt. I mean, it's like magic, but better, because it's real, right? And the where I think it's overhyped is it's not going to be quite as knowledgeable. It will be great in spot applications, but it's not going to take over our lives. Sorry. That's what I think. And it's going to take far longer to roll out than we ever thought. Look at uh, autonomous cars, which use a lot of AI. It's, they're solving difficult problems which take a very long time to solve. But that being said, NVIDIA will benefit in time from its chips. No doubt it makes some of the best chips that run neural networks, and that is machine learning. Right. I mean, I'm seeing analysts mark down, you know, what Google might or or mark up Google's expenses, because if it has to shift to this kind of computation, it's massively more expensive. So bottom line, Kim, (laughs) would you tell people that NVIDIA stock is overvalued here because this is too much hype? Or is it a good long term hold for this kind of next uh, wave of the future? Sure. I think you have to be a really long time holder as an investor to make money overall, but especially in technology. And this is one of those companies that has technology that's going to be needed for years to come. So have patience with this company. All right. 55 P.E. Uh, Reasonable. No. Uh, Steve, thank you very much. Let's turn to Alibaba now, who shares are down 21 percent over the past month. What happened to the China reopening? Dom Chu has the story here, Dom. All right. So from a headline perspective, Kelly, we're going to be looking for earnings of about 16 spot 26 yuan or Chinese renminbi per share. Revenues about 245.2 billion yuan slash renminbi. Now, beyond those top and bottom line estimates, investors will be wading through the report for any commentary or signs tied to your point 
uh, to the health of the Chinese consumer and the impact of China's reopening efforts post its zero COVID policy. Will there be any kind of outlook offered for not just the e-commerce business, which, by the way, makes up the bulk of Baba, but also the cloud services as well, kind of like Amazon? And much like other Chinese tech companies, it's got a lot of smaller non-core stuff going on. We're talking things like food delivery, fintech, streaming video. So are there any updates on that front? And of course, Kelly, will they say anything about artificial intelligence and their ambitions there? As for the options market, it's pricing in a possible move of 5% upward down, Kel, on the heels of that report. Kim, if I'm not mistaken, Munger just called this one of his biggest mistakes of all time. Do you like the stock here? I do not. Although they've out Amazon, Amazon, uh, they out Amazon, Amazon over in China. I think the political issues around any company in China always gives me pause. Um, you know, Jack Ma went on some sort of vacation at some point. It's these kind of issues that just make me run the other way. The other thing is demographics in China are not good. If you're a long-term holder, that one-child policy is supposed to make the population decline. And it looks like they're on that tipping point whenever they release their uh, population census a couple of months ago. So we look for China to be a declining population area. And as that, I think there will be better places in the world to invest. Very interesting. And again, a a lot of this kind of reflected in how poorly it's been trading. All right. Finally, let's talk about NetApp, whose shares are up 9% so far this year. But they did just announce plans to let go 8% of the workforce thanks to that pullback we've seen in IT spend. Dom, what can you tell us about this one? So to that broader point, investors will be, Kelly, looking at what NetApp can actually show them about the health of the cloud computing enterprise or industry overall. The consensus estimates, a buck 31 a share in earnings, 1.61 billion in revenues. Some traders and investors may recall that NetApp stock got crushed on the heels of earnings just a quarter ago, due in large part to what was viewed as a softer forecast, right? So the outlook really disappointed. With that in mind, what will demand for cloud hardware and software look like? Are the macroeconomic concerns clearing clearing up enough for companies to spend more on cloud computing? What's the growth in product versus the higher margin services business at NetApp? And part of the outlook disappointment, by the way, last time around, Kelly, was on currency headwinds. So what does it look like now? As for what to expect on the trade, options right now pricing in a 7% move up or down. So it could be a volatile one for NetApp and cloud computing. All right, Kim, this feels like the kind of under-the-radar stalwart name that, that I'm guessing you're a fan of, although it is down more than 20 percent over the past year. Sure. And and for good reason, because IT spending at the corporate level has been soft. NetApp serves a purpose that uh, people don't probably understand that they can have blended hybrid data for the companies that need on-premises data, but also offload it onto the cloud. And that's really what their secret sauce is. And I think that this world is gonna exist for quite some time. They're um, very good at operating in heterogeneous environments. And that's why I really like this. And remember, I am a long-term investor, three to five years. That's the short-term view for me. Sure. So I'm thinking companies are gonna create data and have to store it. And that's the end of that. 
and 12 times forward for uh, for your buddy NetApp over there. Uh, really appreciate it. Great stuff, guys. Thank you both. Dom Chu and Kim Forrest with our picks and our trade save. And we'll hear from all three companies as mentioned. Before we go, we want to correct something that was just in our news date. We reported it was a CSX train that derailed in Ohio. It was actually a Norfolk Southern one. Uh, meantime, Amazon is the latest tech company to call employees back to the office after years of being remote. But given the strong backlash, could it also be the first to walk back that policy? The latest on Amazon's return to office rift next. Welcome back. Amazon joining the ranks of Google, Apple, Disney, and probably most of your employers, announcing a return to office mandate for employees. CEO Andy Jassy sending a memo saying staffers will need to be in office at least three days a week starting May 1st. And that has prompted significant backlash. CNBC.com reporter Annie Palmer has been following the story, and she's here now to discuss. Welcome. Um, so, I mean, this hardly sounds draconian, but you're talking about a, a pretty huge rebellion taking shape. Yeah, so employees have not received this uh, mandate very well. They've taken to an internal Slack channel and they've started to draft this petition that they're sending around, basically urging Andy Jassy and the S team, which is Amazon's top executives, to drop this mandate and let employees have more flexibility. Why? I mean, has there been similar discontent elsewhere that just, you know, hasn't uh, rippled up quite so much? Or, or is there something about Amazon in particular that has people really hostile about this idea? Yeah, I think with Amazon, you know, they have such a large workforce, 1.6 million people worldwide. And they went through this huge hiring push during the pandemic, brought on some folks in roles that they said were remote. Now they're walking it back and saying, hey, actually, we need you to be within, you know, commuting distance of an Amazon office, which for a lot of people could look different. It could be Seattle, it could be Austin, it could be New York. So um, if some of these roles started as remote, I could understand if people are like, this is a little bit of a bait and switch. Yeah, I think employees are, are feeling like, you know, some people bought homes in, right. in distances far away. Uh, one person that, that we quoted in the story had just taken out a car lease and has certain terms they must meet. So people are feeling like, hey, I can't just up and leave, you know, by May 1st. And I guess the power that they have over the situation goes back to the strength of the economy and, and maybe um, the extent to which they can stay unified. And Amazon, I'm sure, is going to be looked at and have pressure externally from other companies to, to not back down here and to, to stick with this plan. Do you get any sense from Andy Jassy as to whether he might soften his stance or whether he feels quite strongly as some others do? Yeah, I don't know. I think I think we'll have to see how this uh, sort of rebellion <laughs> shakes out. You know, previously, uh, before Amazon last updated their guidance on return to work, which was back in 2021, they had said, hey, everybody come back. Employees were pissed off. They walked that back, said, hey, it's up to your managers. So could see that happen again, but I think we'll, we'll have to see. If, I guess it's worth mentioning or maybe asking the question. I mean, some say this is just a bad look because your white-collar workforce is revolting at the same time that the, sort of the warehouse workers don't have a choice. Yeah, that's very true. And I think um, folks have pointed that out, that, you know, delivery workers and warehouse workers were on the front lines in person throughout the entire pandemic. White-collar workers, by and large, were at home with their families. Now they're being asked to come back, and it's, it feels like this, you know, rebellion of sorts might be a little off-color. All right. Annie, thanks for all your reporting. We appreciate it. Annie Palmer, you can read her piece on CNBC.com. Still ahead, shares of Travel and Leisure Co. hired today on an earnings beat and strong full-year guidance. They just had a record year for property sales also. But can that momentum continue? We'll talk to the CEO, Michael Brown, right after the break.
Welcome back. 2023 is shaping up to be the year of the travel trade. As destinations reopen, demand surges post-pandemic, stocks across the industry are surging to start the year. The hotel ETF beds with a Z uh, includes Marriott, Hilton, and Expedia. It's up nearly 10%. The airline index up 11%. Royal Caribbean shares up 45%. Airbnb, you know that one, up almost 50%. Same goes for Travel and Leisure Co. Their shares higher on an earnings beat and up nearly 13% this year. They had record sales volume last year and said reservations and demand are already outpacing that. Joining us in a first on CNBC interview is CEO Michael Brown. Michael, welcome. Good to be back. Thank in, you. In these, I'll, I'll just use the phrase timeshare so our audience knows what kinds of uh, travel we're talking about. What is driving continued demand for these properties and in what part of the country? Well, 2022, everyone thought it was going to be pent up demand post-COVID. Then it was going to be summer travel. And it just continues into the fall. And we're already seeing in the first two months of this year that leisure travel is not showing any signs of waning. Uh, Last year, it was a little more drive to this year. It's completely broad based growth. Uh, We're seeing tremendous demand for Hawaii, obviously a mid-haul destination, as well as uh, Tennessee, which is clearly a drive to destination. So it's, it's really broad based demand. Um, both drive-to and fly-to destinations. How sustainable is the demand, do you think? Well, I think COVID taught us all one thing is when when you're making decisions about where you're going to spend the money, um, you, you're not going to give up your personal time with your family and friends. You may change how you're going to vacation, but I think the leisure travel demand trend is here to stay. And I think really fueling that growth is this work from anywhere trend that we're seeing where people are, I heard on your last segment about uh, the hybrid work environment, people are leaving uh, their home on a Thursday, getting to their vacation destination and really extending their length of stay. And we're seeing that at all of our resorts. It's true. So to the extent that, you know, you, I hear that story and go, wow, people are going back to the office. You hear that story and you go only three days a week. (laughs) That's going to be a a long-term benefit. Is that right? Well, People are still working when they're away, but you know it makes a huge difference to your vacation experience if you're getting to your destination Thursday, Thursday evening. Totally. You wake up with a cup of coffee and you're on your email or Zoom calls, and as soon as the workday's over on Friday, you're already with your family and friends in the destination you want to be. It makes vacations a lot more enjoyable, and we're seeing that, and, and we're adjusting for that, and it's really benefiting our business yeah. along with along with the comparable value we're seeing because our owners, uh, compared to a hotel stay or a vacation rental stay, have never seen the level of value that they're seeing today. And in some ways, you know, I think about the business model as a little bit of an early kind of like a subscription as a service plan, you know. Um, can right. you speak to that business model um, and, you know, just kind of the, the durability of it as everyone else rushes in to offer kind of everything as a service uh, the, in this day and age? Well, in, in a lot of ways, we've been in the subscription or, or uh, shared space for nearly 50 years. And people, people ultimately want a vacation in a name that they can trust. And the macro trend that we're seeing today, which is it's, it's just a lot more enjoyable when a family of four has two bedrooms and a kitchen as opposed to 250 square feet. So our business is really flowing with the macro trends. 
And what we're seeing in inflation has just added not only the space component, but you've got the brands and the value component as well that's really fueling growth in their business. And like I I said in the first question is we're not seeing any signs of that waning here through the end of February. Well, I appreciate you joining us, Michael. I want to get out of here, get on a plane and go somewhere warm. (laughs) Please do. do. Yeah, do the show from there. Mike Brown, thanks so much for your time today. CEO of Travel and Leisure. Coming up on Power Lunch, though, what Wall Street's been waiting for. More details about the Fed divide over rate hikes. Should they go 50? We're going to get the minutes in just a couple of minutes, actually. Tyler Matheson getting ready for that. I will join you, Ty, on the other side of this break. I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselcumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks were still clearer at 5 years. At 1 year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Trimphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Tremphia. 